Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Oksanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Oksanya. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. I'm Abraham Okusoya, and it's great to be here again today. I am really thrilled about my guest today. Brian Hill is a, should we be saying, former financial planner and managing director of Jones Hill, former managing director of Jones Hill, a financial planning firm which um, he exited uh, just about two years ago. Today is the head of acquisitions at City and Capital. Brian, welcome to Retirementals. Abraham, great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Brian, there's a lot I want to talk to you about. You are one of the financial planners who've walked the journey, been there, done that. You've gone through a journey that many financial planners, uh, you know, business owners are looking to, to go. And now you're using your experience and your expertise to help firms um, who are looking to um, you know, sell or buy or scale their companies. So let's just, we're going to dive into all of that. But before we do that, let's kind of just go back a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your your journey into, into the profession. Well, my journey into the profession was a, a slow and windy one. I know I look, that I look like I'm just 36. I'm a little bit older than that, 39-ish, plus a, plus a tip. <laughs> And uh, so I, I worked through from originally from the army and then various different roles over a course of time uh, and then eventually fell into uh, financial advice and started off as a mortgage advisor just prior to 2008, in fact, 2007, I think it was, I was a, uh, approximately, I was a mortgage advisor. Um, and then our uh, daughter, Madeline, came along in 2007, and we quickly, quickly realized that actually my wife and I couldn't have her as a financial advisor because the little one was in the corner, you know, um, and uh, trying to run a business with the little one in the corner was rather challenging. So I took my uh, pre-IDR qualifications in super quick time, uh, became an IFA, and then uh, started to um, take a long, leisurely uh, started at the career. You know, I don't think I really got going for about six or seven years. In fact, I have no idea what I was doing for six or seven years. I, I, it just seemed to just disappear. I was definitely cruising, uh, but learning the ropes as you go, you know, you can get the exams, get the qualifications, get all the badges, but actually it boots on the ground, sitting with clients, learning about their, their lives, their financial situation, helping them through that actually counts. Um, you know, the, mm. the, the exams are just skin in the game, aren't they? They just get you to a particular point Yeah. after that. It, it's a wee bit more. So that's how I started um, in uh, Jones Hill uh, at that time and then became MD and then um, took it on from uh, from there, really. Right. So, so um, you know, you, you took the business to, you know, about 45 million when you, you know, in, in terms of AUM and t- tell us, the, the circumstances that led to the, uh, you know, to the exit. What was, I mean, you're still, as you said, a, a very young man, you know, why, <laughs> why, why sell? Well, you know, it was um, probably that I realized around about five years before we 
actually sold, that actually I needed to get the business in a position where it is ready to sell. And so I started getting things in line, um, started recruiting stuff. So because I, there's a phrase that I use all the time, which is only do what only you can do in your business. Everything else needs someone else to do it, outsource it, insource it, but don't do it. Otherwise, you're just a glorified administrator, you're a glorified power planner, you're a glorified secretary or whatever you are. Only do what only you can do. Uh, and so what that meant then was that I uh, was then in a position where I decided early 2018, well, back end of 2017-18, that actually um, the tr an opportunity had come up. And so my... Uh, I emigrated with my young family to Italy um, and something must have happened on the grapevine because I kid you not, the day I got on that plane, my foot, my feet were on the floor on that plane. I started getting calls from firms to say, here you're leaving. It's like the door hasn't even <laughs> shut. The door hasn't even shut. What are you doing? Uh, and uh, I got spammed by brokers like there's no tomorrow. It's just ridiculous, really. Um, and then started talking to a few people, started journeying up my knowledge on the process. What I would say that if I knew then what I know now, things might have gone a little bit differently. Um, and my knowledge now is, is, is vastly, vastly, vastly superior um, to what it was at that point in time. But I didn't know any better, you know. Um, and so we had initial chats with local firms, but you tend to find the more local a firm is, the, the, the less money they've got to spend right, and they start right. nitpicking and doing what we call the chocolate box approach where they think actually in the chocolate box i like this bit and i don't like that bit so i'm just going to pay you for that bit and not that bit and actually it's like no mate it's the whole lot you know it might be a trade it might be an asset sale it might be a share sale but it is the whole lot so we I, I kissed a lot of frogs some of them were very unattractive some of them were not so bad but some you know some of them were deeply unattractive when you pop the bonnet on what they were, uh, what they were offering, um, and so we then moved eventually to uh, doing a deal with Prospective Financial Group, uh, and that 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 whole process took. Um, and being in mind, bear in mind, I was absolutely ready to sell. I was absolutely ready to sell, you know, and I had my data room, I had all my stuff ready to go. So all we really needed to do was some due diligence, uh, and that process took six months even though i was ready to ready to do to go uh and wow. the one thing here is people underestimate how long it takes to do it to 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 get these things through due diligence and through the fca mm. uh and so we 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 did all that and uh, eventually we sold september 4th 2020. now that seems like about a decade ago uh lockdown coronavirus quarantine i you know people say what day is it day is it I'm, i don't know what year it is sometimes uh, you know, so um, <laughs> it, it was a, it was a an experience like no other, and it, it it's really given me a real insight into um, being able to speak with other owners of advice businesses to say, and they tell us this all the time. You know, the credibility is off the scale because we're the only brokerage who have actually done it ourselves. So this is this is fascinating. We're going to get into uh, all that. The the thing that I'm always um, interested to know is how how are these deals structured? So you've gone through the experience now. You're helping others. Um, 
generally, you know, how are these deals structured in terms of the valuation? Um, you know, is it, you know, typically the people talk about three times, you know, revenue or four or five times revenue um, yeah. or, you know, multiple of EBITDA, something like that. And then this idea of upfront cash versus some sort of end out over a period of time. Give us the real practical experience of how that how that structure. So, so brilliant, brilliant questions. Too many people get focused in on the multiple. And I got drawn into that as well. They think the mm. multiple is a be all and end all. It's absolutely not. It's a third thing you need to, we need to think about. The first thing is culture. Is there a cultural fit between me and the, mm. between me or my team or my company and the acquiring firm? You know, if, if you're dead, if you've sold the fact you're an IFA to your clients for the last 20 years, they ain't going to be best play, pleased if you then mm. say, ah, we're going to go with true potential or we're going to go with SJP or, you know, because you're, you're not keeping your promises, you know, and the acquiring firm can't possibly keep your promises for you either. So the culture of the deal is important. How you look after your clients, your charging structure, what's the harmonization going to be? That culture is number one. And if you aren't 80% aligned, then you, you're going to lose out on the following bit, which is the structure of the deal. And no one deal we see we, we see is the same. So you'll have some deals where, or let's call them business transfers or business exits, where people will, advisor, owner advisors, will sell and exit. They'll just hang around for a little bit to help out with some stuff, but they'll exit. That's what I did. It's called the cliff edge right. exit. It's not a brilliant idea right. for most people, to be fair. You're better, you know, some people will stay on. So essentially we've got the sell and exit. That's number one. Number two is sell, stay, exit. So you might stay on for two years in the role as a financial advisor, maybe in the role of an ambassador, whatever that means, but it's, you're going to stick around for a couple mm. of years. And that is a bit of a risky thing because I tell you what, if you haven't sorted out the culture to start off with, you're then employed. <laughs> buy a firm you don't want to be with and that two years will feel like 20. Uh, and not only that, right. you'll be under a restrictive covenant, which means then that you can't go and work for somebody else for a period of at least three or four years. So that's why culture is really, really important. That alignment is super important. So we have sell and exit or sell, sell, stay and exit or sell, grow and exit. So these are for the younger guys who or girls who have their own firm or who have an appetite, they want to stay on, but they need, um, if you like investment from another firm, they want to take some capital off the table, but they want investment from another firm to take it to the next level. And sometimes we can, we call these hub firms. So they'll come in and they'll, they'll sit in, you know, a, a PE firm, private equity firm will buy them 80%. They'll buy it. Then they'll go and this firm will then buy satellite firms or spoke firms. Actually we call them. Uh, so you have the hub and spoke method. So they bought 80%. Then you come to sell your remaining 20%. And if everything's going gone according to plan, hopefully your 20% is worth more than the 80% that you parted with initially. And that's not available for everyone by any stretch. You know, if you've got like a two-man um, firm, chance of them becoming a hub is pretty slim, to be honest. Uh, you need to have, it needs to be more going on. Uh, you know, we've got a number of firms who their valuation is between 10 and 20 million. Those are going to be hub firms. Absolutely, because they're going to stick around. They're going to buy other firms up uh, who are who are local to them. So it's the three things: either sell and exit, sell, stay and exit, 
will sell grow and exit. Uh, to be honest, most most acquirers actually don't want you around for too long. Right. You know, uh, right. It's kind of there's the door. If you could just make your way over in that direction, that would be great. So this is that that's brilliant, and I like the the way you broke it down very simply into those three categories. But you creatively avoided my question, which is what's going rate and how is it structured in terms of cash? Oh, you can't ask me that. You can't ask me that question. Um, okay, let me let me let me say this. Um, it's how long is a piece of string? All right. So give me a ballpark. You know what do you see in the market out there? Okay, so there's there's if there's three ways of valuing a business usually in financial services. Number one is a multiple of normalized or adjusted EBITDA or profit. Number two is a or number two is a multiple of recurring revenue. Or number three is a percentage of your assets under management. Right. Very few people do that. The, the assets under management. Usually, it's people who are just going to operate. You're going to get shot of everything, shoehorn your clients into uh, one size fits all and deal with it remotely. So it's, they pay big money because it's highly profitable. Um, uh, but once most IFAs look at it, they kind of say, many IFAs look at it, they say, no thanks. So we're then left with either multiple of EBITDA, normalized EBITDA, or a multiple of uh, recurring revenue. Smaller firms like mine are done on the basis of a multiple of recurring revenue. So I had around about 45 million of uh, revenue, if it's a solid, uh, sorry, revenue, that'd be nice. Uh, 45 million of assets <laughs> under management, um, and uh, which, which was uh, uh, very nice. And they gave me a multiple of recurring revenue. My model was a little bit different because it was a fixed fee model, uh, but which creates its own issues, to be honest. Uh, right. And that would be anything between uh, two and a half, up to around four and a half. So if we look at different, how, what, what imp, how does that vary? So if we break it down into four different levels of advice firm, A, B, C, and D. A is best in class or most attractive. And they're right. gonna achieve over four. Um, B is above average. C is below average. D is, what the hell are you doing? Right? Or, <laughs> or, or distressed, all right? So uh, for instance, the firm we're, we're helping at the minute, they've approached us because acquire, that was a, it's a distressed business from a point of view of the health of the advisor. Um, mm. They've unfortunately mm. been diagnosed with uh, terminal illness. They don't have, you know, five years to, 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 to ex exit gradually. Uh, acquirers were aware of this and they offered them one and a half times recurring revenue. Wow. We've got them up wow. to three and a half times recurring revenue. Uh, with with acquirers, but some acquirers were saying, "Yeah, you're a level D," in not so many words. So we're so you know you have to sell, you know. So A, B, C, and D. What you'll notice is that there is no average. You're either above average or you're below average. And what I would encourage people to do is to look at it objectively, to look at it from the point of view of somebody else you're transferring your business to, is just not going to look at it the same way you did. We all like to think our business is different. Our business is best. We have the best investment portfolio. We have the best staff. We have the best relationship with your clients. Um, well, that might well be the case, but acquirers often won't think that. All right. So we need to get off our little ego stool and look at it as objectively as we can. So we have to sometimes tell people the God's honest truth on things. You know, one of the things which can really 
um, it's a real stumbling block is self-employed advisors. All right. So if you have a business with young self-employed advisors, you know, in the thirties and forties, bringing in most of your revenue, uh, most acquirers will not pay you for it mm. at all because these advisors would just walk unless you can convert them to an employed model and the next five to 10 years it will go you're virtually all employed, I'm sure. Uh, but unless you can convert your self-employed advisors to employed contracts, their revenue means nothing. Now that's a big, unless you're the, unless you're the, you know, the owner advisor, obviously that's kind of self-employed, but apart from then, if you've got staff, it, the, the value is it's, it's D, you know, even though you might have the best of everything, if they're self-employed, it, it has a real, real negative impact on the value of the business. So we've got the A, B, C's and D's. Uh, there'll be things like we're, we're doing a, um, a webinar with 360 because one of the things we found is that if advisors haven't got all their compliance ducks in a row, you know, that they haven't done an annual audit of their uh, CIP or prod, if we can't evidence annual suitability going right across the board, if we can't see how they've selected the investments, you know, and if it isn't written, if it, if it isn't um, written, it went down, it didn't happen. Right. And if we can't evidence that we are then transferring more risk to a potential acquirer, which means they'll pay you less. So it's absolutely key to have our processes and systems very well documented and objectively and independently reviewed. And the acquirers love it and they'll pay extra for it. If you don't have it, they'll pay you less. Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Heating Jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Typical model portfolio service costs about 36 basis points. That's in addition to the funds, the platform, you know, the advice fees. Tell us a bit about Betafolio's view and approach on fees. Well, I don't think anyone that knows us already, Abraham, would be surprised to hear me say that in a nutshell, NPS fees are too high. Um, if you include the fund charges and the platform fee that you already talked about, we get close to 1%, I think, on average for a lot of retail clients. And that's before they start paying for the financial plan, which is the part of the service that will ultimately add the most value for them in their advisor relationship and experience. Um, so, I mean, my view on fees and Betafolio's view on fees is that they have a real impact on current outcomes that need attention. Um, and that's why we're building a scalable solution with technology that will allow us to keep costs low. And I think we also should consider the impact of these fees on advisors' businesses too. Advisors need to, to make a profit from, from their work. They need to have a viable business and their cost bases have been rising because of regulation and the, the more cost they have to pass through to their clients for overcomplicated services in, in turn puts pressure on the advisor's own fees and, and ultimately makes it not possible for them to, to run a, a good business. So fees are really crucial um, and I'm really happy that we're in a position to be having a positive influence on the, the trends in the market. 
Good stuff. Thank you, Nikki. This is brilliant, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. This is just, you know, all the things in my head is going in, in all the different direction yeah. because yeah. you're delivering such a massive value right now, my friend. Yeah. So yeah. I want to, I want to unpack this. So you, you, you talked about those three things of, yeah, sorry, you talked about those say four, four different levels, right? And a number of things that would affect, that would put you um, in, in one of those layers. So um, culture, I assume, will be one of them that you talked about. You talked about this idea of um, how the, the employment contract or the employment status of the advisor yeah. and compliance, um, you know, having a tight investment proposition and all that stuff. What else? What else are they looking for as potential, you know, that could have an impact on, on that, on, on, sure. on so where you sit most... on the level? Yeah, so one of the most important things is you as the owner. What are your plans? What do you want to do? You know, what a, what a, uh, I have a four-year restrictive covenant on mine. Usually it's three years, but they looked at it because I was so, I'm so young <laughs> that they wanted to protect themselves because they thought, they thought, actually, you know what? If Brian came back into the market, the chance of all his clients swimming back to him is high. High. And actually, they went right, one step right. further and they said, I'm not permitted to to advise anywhere in the UK remotely at all. Um, so that was a real risk for them if I came back into the market. And I would I would never have done that, but they wanted the the uh, contracts to say that. Um, and what they want to know is what are you going to do? So sometimes with some with some acquirers, they'll say to you, Abraham, actually you're doing a great job here. Why don't you stay on and then come and work for us and do some other stuff? maybe help other parts of the business, you know? So we see some really interesting yeah. deals where acquirers, they don't want, sorry, advisors, they don't want to advise clients anymore. They've had enough of retail, if you like. They've had enough of getting the uh, FS, uh, getting the FCA and FSCS random checks in the post. They've had enough of the PI insurance just going up and up and up and up. They've had enough of the FCA sending ridiculous COVID surveys. FCA, if you're listening, stop sending them, please. No one wants to do them. Um, but they want to know what you want to, what, what you're going to do. Uh, and that, that may impact the value as well. But, but the most important thing there, Abraham, is they want a motivated seller. And the reason for that is there is a fixed cost to acquiring a firm. And if partway through the seller thinks, ah, you know what, it's not for me. I'll look at it again in three years time. They wasted everybody's time, including their own. So we want motivated sellers, we want educated sellers, and we want sellers who know what they want out of a deal. We and, and they have realistic expectations. You know, sometimes we talk to people and they say, yeah, I know the market says a three and a half to four times recurring. I want six. I say, okay, yeah, great. What's specialist? Mm -hmm. what's, what's special about your business? And they go, oh, uh, don't know, really? So, okay, well, you know, that's never going to happen. So we need to do, you know, we need to look at different things. Other things that will impact the value might be uh, if you are delivering a holistic financial planning service, you're really looking after your clients. Um, they are getting the maximum service out of you, but the average value is a hundred grand and you're charging half a percent. That's, that's, mm. you might be doing a great job. You might be compliant up to the hilt, but you know, there's just no meat in that for an acquirer uh, at all. Um, so there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that they will look at 
as the whole picture. It's not just down to your assets under management. It's not just down to your recurring revenue. It's the whole picture of the business. So I spend a lot of my time getting underneath the bonnet of financial advice firms, understanding what they look like, look like and representing them to acquirers. Um, so we, I might just say we're, the, we're, we're a, what you call a sell side brokerage. So we represent the vendor, whereas I think all other brokers are buy side, they re represent the acquirers. So that's, that's a key thing to bear in mind. Um, and I suppose really the, 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 the seller needs to understand what they're actually selling. Or actually a better word is transferring. What is it you're transferring to somebody else that you're going to get paid for? And the better you understand that, the, the easier the whole process is, if that makes sense. So you alluded to this um, challenge earlier um, of, you know, financial planner looking at these potential buyers and yeah. saying, for whatever reason, um, you know, they're not aligned with us, especially around the investment proposition. So you yeah. see this, which is very rampant in the sector right now, of, yeah. you know, these acquirers coming in, buying, um, you know, a financial planning firm where, you know, the firm might be used to low cost investment proposition, low cost platforms and getting good quality financial plan, which is where the, the value is. Um, and then these clients are going to go into a proposition where, Evidently, the objective of the buyer is to move them into more expensive investment proposition and to diminish the value of advice or, or maybe not even deliver planning. How, how do you address this challenge? And especially, how did you, um, you know, communicate this to, to your client? The idea that now you're selling, you know, that they're going, they're going to be clients of, um, you know, some other company? How, how did you address yeah. that? Um, so just dealing with that last part first, uh, as part of what the exit process, uh, I insisted on a split exchange and completion. And between exchange and completion, then we organized the uh, client um, uh, information pack, if you like. And so what we did was um, I sent out a letter with perspective at the same time, which arrived, was sent out on the Friday to arrive on people's doorsteps uh, or, or, or mm. uh, doormats on the Saturday morning. On the Friday evening, I also sent an email to our entire client list saying exactly the same thing. I also sent a video, personal video from me explaining things. So we had three goes at it, which meant that out of the 160, 150, 160 households we had, one person didn't get it. That was it. Um, and so we had put in there, uh, in that letter, like a frequently asked questions answers, you know, you're going to ask this, this is the, the answer. Um, so it meant that although it was a shock to a lot of people, um, we'd already, we already preempted a lot of those, those questions, uh, if it makes sense. Now, as far as the, the first question, which is about alignment of investment, then this is absolutely key. And this is something people, when they look at the money on offer, they kind of seem to forget this bit. We have, when we're assessing um, someone's business for sale and someone's motivation, I want to know three things. I want to know, number one, what are your red lines? Number two, I want to know what your restrictions are. And number three, I want to know what your requirements are, right? So red lines 
are things which you will not agree to for any amount of money, any amount of money. And it's interesting how people move from between, they think it's a red line, but actually when they're offered that money, they'll move it to a requirement. So I'm saying to people, right, you're going to get a million quid for your business. Um, or if you're going to be, uh, if, if, if you're going to go down the uh, IFA route, if you go down the restricted, it'll be 2 million. What do you want to do? Mm. And people will go, I'm really independent, but that's actually quite a lot of money. <laughs> You know, and it's so so that's no longer a red line. That's a require. That's a requirement. A restriction. Sorry, you know, to say okay, I don't want to go down the route of a vertically integrated firm, but I'm quite happy with kind of whole of market, right? Yeah. And then the requirements are um, again, you've got to be realistic. But there's someone who says I want 100 percent of the money up front. It's like you're not being realistic. This this never happens. Ever, ever, right. ever happens now. It just doesn't. Why would they pay right. you all the money up front and take that risk that you're just going to go off to, you know, to Thailand for the next 20 years and they can't get the money back? Let's be realistic. Um, so it's a transfer of risk, including the money they're going to pay you because they're banking on those clients staying with them, not just for the period of the deferred consideration, but for the next five to 10 years. They want 10 years worth of income. So for instance, if just referring back to one of your earlier questions, if you're a client bank, his average age is 70 and you can't evidence intergenerational planning uh household planning the value of your your client bank is diluted it's diminished because th th those clients are going to be out of there they just are you know whereas um if you can say well my average client age is 60 uh, mine was 60.4 and those clients are over the age of 80 we have intergenerational planning uh, the, 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 the acquirer will look at that, should look at that and go, great, you are above average or even a grade A as far as your client bank is, is concerned, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, so part of our role really with this Abraham is just making sure the vendors go through, go through things very, very thoroughly and they understand their red lines, their restrictions and their requirements. And they also understand how challenging this can be. So for instance, we had a, um, a, a request for, um, as part of the due diligence, request for information from, uh, as part of the due diligence from an acquirer, it had 500 points on it, 500 points, of which 250 were compliance. Now, they're not going to, you know, somewhere didn't need to answer and all the rest of it, but I looked at it and was like, oh my gosh, jeepers, where do we start with this? So we're, we're involved very early on. We get, we get all the, we do, we get the data room organized real early on based on what, uh, people need, because we've been through that mill. We've been through that process. And I can tell you, if you're not ready, it makes you look amateur, really makes you look amateur. So, I, I mean, I speak to a lot of financial planners, you know, many in their forties, maybe even fifties. And there's, they're thinking to themselves, they say, you know, I'm not planning, you know, I, I'm not planning to sell in the next couple of years. Um, I'm still young. Uh, why should I be thinking and worrying about this stuff? Yeah. When yeah. would you say is the ideal time for a planner to start, um, you know, lining their docks in a row, as, as it were? Uh, there, there's two dates. One was the day they started their business. And if they haven't done that, pretty much guarantee they haven't. I didn't. If they haven't done that. The second best date is today. 
And, and the reason for that is it's a long timeline to get done. So for instance, if you have a, uh, if we do a, uh, do a transaction today, we transfer a business to an acquirer today, you'll have the deferred consideration period, which is usually at least two years, maybe three years. So you get 50% or 60% day one, 25% year one, 25% the end of year two. It takes between six and 12 months to actually go, th go through the whole process from start through the completion. So we're actually talking about at least a three year period. So if someone says, I'm looking at exiting in three years time, um, well, you've started already, right? Um, and if you, right, if you haven't, right. okay, you need to kind of push it out. You need to push it out. And we're, you know, I'm, if you, if you cut me, cut me down the middle, I'm a financial planner and we always tell clients, you're better putting the money in early than you are putting more money in late. All right. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the same with this. Get started, get your ducks in a row, get the, and find out, you know, if this business is going to deliver your number or not, because if it's not, you're going to need to change. You know, so mm. we need to understand the process, get educated and uh, look at what the ideal time is. Now, the really important thing with this, though, Abraham, is that I'm a firm believer in you need to be ready for that forced or non forced sell. Right. You know, because health, whatever. Exactly right. So because of health or the latest FCA thematic review suddenly comes out. And uh, how many DB businesses have been screwed who are very, very good, but now just can't do any business, can't get any PI uh, for, their, for their business or an opportunity. If I had a quid for everyone who said, you know, well, I'd sell if I had the right, if the right offer came along. Well, mate, if you ain't ready, that offer will never come along. That's like saying, I'm going to, you know, uh, one day I could win the lottery. Well, if you don't buy the lottery ticket, you ain't going to win. So the, the key thing with this is to start getting the business ready now then that gives you the opportunity. So I was used to saying financial planning clients, you know, forget retirement. It's about financial independence. So financial independence, when you reach that date, and this is what we use Finalytic for a huge amount, um, was when you get to, um, to that particular date, you then have the choice to retire or be financially independent or go and play golf or whatever. It doesn't mean you will. It just means you have the choice. So what that means is if people are ready yeah. and if they want some of our checklists, so I'll be happy to wing them across. Uh, to the people listening, um, uh, and if they if if they if they do that, then they will be able to um, have a business which is ready and take advantage. And I, I, what I would say is that there's a lot of money awash in the in the acquisition space at the minute. There's a lot of money, but right. I mm. I think in the next five years, if the average age of a financial advisor is 55 or 53 or something like that at the minute, and they're all saying I'm going to sell in the next five years. We're going to move from a seller's market to a buyer's market, and we're going to see these multiples drop and acquirers be highly, highly selective as to who they, they're taking on board. So whereas, you know, you know better than most, Abraham, we shouldn't time the market, but we do need to be aware of it. No, fascinating stuff. So, so obviously you've had a great exit, right? You know, uh, you, you, you got, a lot of money in the bank. <laughs> um, so t talk to me about, you know, A, how you decided what's next and what's the attractiveness of, you know, City and Capital. Talk, talk about City and Capital, why, why you joined sure. and, you know, some of the thought process going yeah. on in your mind um, uh, sure. before you, you made that decision. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to upset a few people with this. Um, hopefully I won't get sued. But the, um, uh, the, the thing is with this is that I went through the process and was kicking around wondering what I might do next. Um, and you know what? I'd become so disillusioned with the broker market, so disillusioned with it. They didn't understand financial advice firms in detail or in depth at all. It's not their fault. They've never run one. They've never sat where you've sat, They've never sat mm. where I've sat. They don't understand the intricate nuances and mechanics of a financial advice business. They just don't, it's not their fault, but they didn't know that I'd exchanged. They didn't even know I'd completed. They had no input at all. It was, and, and a lot of brokers that I see actually just go around and just take your details and fling it out to their, their entire acquisition list. Um, and I was determined that I wanted to do things differently because, because I've got a lot of friends in financial planning and um, I respect my colleagues a huge amount. People underestimate how the good that financial planners do that you know and I know how good you know the results that they get from people, not least of all the peace of mind you know that, that, that they bring. Um, but they're going to be exiting. So I wanted people to exit as good as, if not better than I had. So I looked around and talked to, mm. avoided some brokers, talked to a few, met with a couple, and then I came across City and Capital and Vic, Vicky Hicks. And I knew as soon as I lighted upon the website, this is the one for me. And the reason for that is that Vicky is a chartered financial planner, and she also started, built, and exited her own financial planning business. And suddenly, we are now the only practitioner-led sell-side broker in the whole of the UK. We're the only firm that's actually done it and have got the, the scars to prove it. Um, and this means then that mm -hmm. other financial advisors who you know and I know have said to me, Brian, we don't talk to brokers. No, we don't want to go through brokers, but we do want to use you because you've, you've been us in it, done it, got the T-shirt, and we need your expertise with this. Um, and so we joined City and Capital. I joined City and Capital. Now, um, if people are looking at this later on, we're actually changing the name of City and Capital because it's a, it's a no name, means nothing, basically. So we're changing the name. Um, I think we might change it to, we're working on this with Phil Bray from the Yardstick Marketing, whom, you, whom, you, whom you'll know as well. And we've decided to, at this moment in time, change the name of the business to the Exit Partnership because that's what it's about. It's a partnership between us right. and the vendors to help them exit well, if that makes sense. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. So um, I, I want to start to wrap this up. So I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, this is the gig for you for the next couple of years. Um, of course, you know, this is a podcast where we, 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 we talk about retirement. <laughs> you, yeah. you said financial freedom. But, but if we were to look at, you know, the Hill family financial freedom plan, yeah. What does that look like? What does the next uh, couple of years look like for you? Um, well, I'm really enjoying this at the minute. Uh, I hope Vicky back in Leeds is enjoying me enjoying it too. It gives me the freedom to work as I want to work. It gives me the, um, the ability to stay within the financial planning profession, which I love. Uh, and it gives me the ability to you know, be a master of my own destiny. destiny. You know as well as I do that when you've been self-employed for so long you're completely unemployable completely unemployable um and and, and so yeah, what that means for me is then you know i i find something that i really really like and i don't plan on changing anything soon what i do plan on doing is skiing 
a little bit more. There's been no skiing this year. There's been no skiing last year. I'm sick to the back teeth of it. I think if Boris can go and have his um, cheese and wine work parties, I'm sure I can have a ski work party as well. For goodness sake. What's all that about? Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Brian Hill, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. Um, and where can financial planners find you? Uh, you know, social media, website. I'm yeah. assuming the website name's going to change. Yeah, yeah. So uh, LinkedIn is probably the best thing. Uh, uh, so Brian, uh, Brian Hill, MSC. Uh, uh, just um, hook up with me there. Uh, I'll be at all the conferences and speaking at a few of them uh, as well. So uh, there or uh, just Google Brian Hill IFA and you'll see um, see the, a, a few pages on me. You'll, you'll, you'll probably know, <laughs> this sounds terrible. You probably know someone who knows me if you don't know me already. Is that, that's not famous, that's, that's infamous. <laughs> Brian, thank you very much for your Pleasure, time. thank you, Abraham. You're doing a great job, thank you. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together. Thank you, thank you very much guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.